Hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version. You can find this reading on page 808 in the Pew Bible. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with Peter the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I'm deeply grieved and even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's get going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We have been saying over the past few weeks that this is a particularly historic Lenten season. We've shared already that for the first time in 73 years, Ash Wednesday is on Valentine's Day, and Easter Sunday is on April Fool's Day. As our worship team got together this past week to finalize plans for next Sunday, someone even floated the idea that we begin our Easter morning services next week by announcing that Jesus has indeed risen from the tomb, seen his shadow, and there will be six more weeks of Lent. (laughs) But there is one more historic peculiarity about this Lenten season. For the first time, In 73 years, Palm Sunday is on March 25th. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, on March 25th, every single year, in the Christian liturgical calendar, March 25th is Annunciation Day. That means that today we are precisely nine months before Christmas Day, nine months before we observe the birth of Jesus, Go ahead and start your shopping now, if you want. (laughs) Today is when the church has historically, annually observed that grand moment when the angel Gabriel visited a very young girl named Mary and changed her life forever. Now, the fact that Palm Sunday and Annunciation Day occur on the very same day this year presents some very compelling connections that we wouldn't want to miss today. 
especially since those connections provide such a beautiful backdrop for the central question that is our theme today. What does obedience to God look like? And what difference should it make to you and me? Because if there's anything we have come to know and appreciate about Mary, it's that she was obedient, right? It's that she, was, she said yes to God. Even though she was afraid, even though she was doubtful, even though there would have been any of a number of reasons for her to say no. And in fact, if she had said no to God, we wouldn't have blamed her, given how fearful and doubtful she was. But she said yes. And because she was obedient to God, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain and suffering she would endure, it changed her life forever and changed the world. Now fast forward 33 years. 33 years from the moment she said yes, there was another scene of another person who was caught with a decision to make. This one not between an angel and a young girl, but with Jesus, the son of Mary, in the garden of Gethsemane. And here he is facing the very same kinds of questions that his very own mother faced at the moment that the angel visited her when he was conceived. The very same choice between comfort or obedience, between self-preservation or self-sacrifice, between doing his will and doing the will of God. You know, it's interesting. Of all the words that Jesus could have used in that prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, his words were so precise. You remember, Gray just read it moments ago. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. Many of us have heard this prayer before. It's a, it's a standard part of our Passion Week, Holy Week scriptures. We know this scripture very well. In fact, most of the prayer that Jesus prayed, most of his word choice is pretty self-explanatory. Look at the way he begins the prayer. He says, my father, which in the original Greek language was Abba, which could most accurately and literally be translated as daddy. This was Jesus praying in the most intimate relational terms with God. In that moment of this keen decision in his life, he chose not to pray some ritualized, formalized prayer or conceive of God as some transcendent, distant being to which he needed to appeal. This was Jesus in the raw, Jesus in the real, his most vulnerable. And he chose to appeal to God just like you and I have appealed to our mommies and daddies in our times of need. This was Jesus saying, Daddy. That first part of the prayer is compelling and it is clear. And so is the last part of the prayer. The way he concludes the prayer, he simply says, Not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want. 
It's very clear that regardless of the strain that was going on within his body, regardless of the stress that was pulsing through his blood-stained brow, no matter how fearful or doubtful he might have been, his conclusion was clear. He was going to do the will of God and have done to him whatever God wanted to be done. The first part of that prayer is very clear. The last part of that prayer is too. But what I find so compelling is the part in the middle. The center section of this prayer caught my attention this past week and it wouldn't let me go. The part of the prayer where Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. And I thought to myself, what an interesting word choice. What does it mean for Jesus to say, let this cup pass from me? What, what a strange and unexpected choice of words. What kind of cup was Jesus talking about? That's what I wondered this past week. Was it a symbolic cup or a literal cup? I mean, surely Jesus wasn't talking about a literal cup. What was he referring to? And most importantly for us, what does this cup have to do with obedience and what difference should it make to us? You know, the common way that we have understood those words is that the cup that Jesus was praying about represented agony and anguish, suffering. We might even say it also represented God's wrath and God's punishment. That's the common way that the image of the cup is used all throughout the Bible. If you look at the prophets Habakkuk, or the epistles of Paul over and over again. There's a cup that is referenced, and that image represents the fullness of God's wrath and punishment upon humanity. And so this cup would have been for Jesus all of the agony and suffering that he was going to take upon himself. So we have commonly understood that this very human Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that night was wrestling deep within his spirit about whether or not he really wanted to go through with this, whether he wanted to go through this mission and endure God's punishment and wrath that was meant for humanity, but to take it upon himself. And so he was thinking about all of that cup would represent, every single whip crack, every single punch to the face, every single jeer, every single side-eyed glance, every single spit upon his face, every single thorn pressed upon his brow, every single nail piercing his flesh. That's the way we've commonly understood his words. That when Jesus was saying, let this cup pass from me, what he was really saying was, Daddy, I don't know if I really want to do this. I don't know if I want to do this part of the mission. In fact, if there is any way to fulfill your purpose without the cross, I'm all ears. But what if there's a different way to understand it? What if there's a different way to understand what that cup means and what it symbolized to Jesus? What difference would that make to us? As I was asking that question this past week, I came across an amazing book written by a wonderful Catholic theologian named Scott Hahn, who, as it turns out, just a month ago, released a brand new book called The Fourth 
cup. And I find his conclusion to be one that is deeply profound and dramatically unlocks new meaning and understanding of what Jesus was really praying for with this cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. Begins with the reminder that this story is from the Gospel of Matthew. That's the story we just heard. And Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Jews or Christians who once were Jews. Which means that the people who originally heard Matthew's version of the gospel would have been very familiar with Jewish custom and symbolism and imagery. And they would have immediately recognized that a few hours before this Garden of Gethsemane prayer, Jesus would have been practicing what every Jew would have been doing at that time. Just a few hours ago, in the upper room, with his disciples, he was practicing Passover. The great Passover meal. Not just any meal, but a meal of remembrance that had such specific instructions, directions for people to follow, that he would have been following the same instructions that countless generations prior to him would have followed, and even Jewish people today would be using the same liturgy, the same order, the same structure to that Passover meal. So we remember that the instructions for the Passover that Jesus followed were very clear, practiced in the same way for centuries. They involved prayers, they involved retelling of stories, they involved the eating of a meal, and they involved cups. The order of the meal is essentially divided into four parts, much like four quarters of a football game or four quarters to an NBA basketball game. The first section is the opening. It's the welcome to the meal. It involves the dish of herbs and a cup, the first cup, the cup of blessing. And the words instruct the host to say a blessing over that cup as a way of setting a tone for the blessing of the entire meal to come. That's the first part. That's the first cup. Section number two involves a retelling of the Passover story. It's a reminder to all of the participants of all that God had done centuries ago to free the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh and lead them into freedom through the wilderness and into the promised land. And as that story is recounted, there is a second cup, a cup of remembrance that is blessed and then drank. Then the third part of the meal, the biggest part of the meal, the more substantive part of the meal, where the actual meal, the food is eaten, this wonderfully delicious lamb is eaten, along with unleavened bread. And along with that unleavened bread is a third cup. Now, this Catholic theologian, this, this writer, Scott Hahn, has concluded that it was here, in the, in the third part of the Passover meal, that Jesus goes off script. He starts improvising his own instructions. He goes rogue. Because in that third part of the meal, he takes that unleavened bread, and he says something the disciples had never heard before in countless Passovers past. He says, this bread, 
this bread is me. And whenever you break of this bread, you remember what I've done for you. And then he's just getting started because after he takes that bread and lifts it up, he then takes that third cup, that third cup, and he, and he holds it up high. And he says something the disciples had never heard before. He says, this cup is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I could just imagine the disciples sitting there at the table saying, Jesus, are you feeling all right? Did, did you forget how to read? I mean, the instructions are right here. You're not following the directions. What is this stuff about bread and cup, Jesus? Are, what's going on here? But regardless of how surprised the disciples must have been in that moment, it was nothing compared to the surprise that Jesus still had in store. Because then they got to the fourth and final part of the Passover meal. In that fourth part of the meal, it involves the singing of a hymn. And traditionally, the, the words that are sung come straight out of Psalm 114 to 118. It's a song called the Great Hallel, the Great Praise. And what is in Psalm 114 to 118? Well, I invite you to look it up for yourself between now and Easter. But what it says is a recounting of all of God's saving acts to the people of God all throughout history. Including their freedom from Pharaoh and their leading through the wilderness into the promised land. And a promise to the people of God that God would always be there to restore them and give them new hope. And all that would be called upon the people is utter and complete obedience to God. That's in Psalm 114 to 118. And that's the hymn that they're supposed to sing. And then after that, that's when you drink of the fourth cup. The cup of consummation, the cup of completion. But Matthew is very clear. Matthew is very clear in his gospel that when Jesus and the disciples got to the fourth quarter of the meal, they did sing the hymn, and then Jesus stopped the meal. He cut it short. He did not offer that fourth and final cup of completion to the disciples because in his mind it was not yet finished. The story of God's saving love was not yet complete. And I can just imagine the disciples saying to Jesus, Ah, Jesus, aren't you forgetting something? It would be like stopping a football game at the two-minute warning. It would be like walking out of a movie theater with five minutes to go left in the film. It would have felt unresolved and incomplete, but not to Jesus. Because he knew. He knew that the saving love of God, he knew that the faithful work of God, he knew that this salvation story was not yet over. So, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying that prayer to his daddy, 
Perhaps the more accurate translation of his prayer in that moment would have been this. Daddy, if there is no other way to complete this story, if there is no other way to fulfill your mission, if there is no other way to do your will, than for me to become the fourth and final cup of this story, then I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. This was not a Jesus who was looking for an escape hatch at the last second. This was not a Jesus looking for the eject button to parachute out of this mission at the last minute. This was a Jesus who was clear that there was a mission to complete and there was a fourth cup to drink and that cup had to be him. In fact, if you look at Matthew's gospel, he gives us a hint just a few verses before. In verse 29, when he said to the disciples that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until the mission was complete. And later, when he's hanging on the cross, Jesus says the words, I thirst, I'm thirsty. Now, the other Gospels say that too. But Matthew is the only one to record this, that that when the people offered him sour wine and vinegar to drink, Matthew is the only one to say that Jesus refused to drink of it. Why? Because that wasn't the fourth cup. It was his body that needed to be poured out. And that's why at the very moment that he died and he breathed his last, that's when Jesus said, it is finished. Because the only cup that would be sufficient would be that of his own body poured out for us as the fourth and final cup and he was ready. Which brings us back to Mary. Mary, this model of obedience. Because on this day, when Palm Sunday and Annunciation Day fall on the very same day, it should become very clear to us that in that moment when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not only praying to his daddy, he was thinking about his mama. On this day, I'd like to think that when, when Jesus was wrestling with the greatest decision of his life, he remembered that someone within his own family wrestled with that very same decision his own mother, who chose, in a way, to become a cup herself, a a vessel through which God's grace and love would be poured out through her for the benefit of all humanity. When his own mother decided to carry within herself the blessing of God's love for the world, he would remember that she too would sing a hymn of praise. In fact, the words of the Magnificat are some of the most beautiful words ever sung in the entire Bible. And then, after Mary sang that hymn, she too 
would offer herself in obedience to God's will. Where in the world did Jesus learn to do that? He learned it from his mama. That's why this journey ahead is so important. That's why this Holy Week that lies before us is so critical. Our services this week on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday are not just events for you to attend. They're, they are reminders of the great lengths that Jesus went to to become the fourth and final cup of completion for your salvation. So the fact that I'm encouraging you to come this Thursday and Friday to our Holy Week services is not simply asking you to support some program or ministry in the church. It is so much more important than that. This week, you can complete the meal. You can see how the story is supposed to end. To remember that the story of your salvation, the story of your new life in God is given to you by a Jesus who is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I encourage you to come this Thursday and Friday instead of skipping right ahead to Easter. And if for some reason you're not able to join us for either of those services this week, I at least encourage you to read two important bits of scripture. The first, Psalm 114 to 118. Its words constitute the great hymn that was probably sung by Jesus and the disciples on that night to remind them and remind us of God's saving love. And the other bit of scripture I invite you to read, ironic as it might be, read the Magnificat this week. Read the words that Mary sang before she came to a point of obedience to God. And remember that these words are for you. So sisters and brothers, welcome to Holy Week. It was not only a week that changed the world. It is a week that can change your life. Let us pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for the stunning example of obedience that you have given to us in Jesus. We remember that in him we find new life. And as he weighed the fears and doubts that all of us would have in the face of suffering and agony, he chose to confront the realities of the cross with boldness and courage and faith, knowing that in him the story of your love would be fulfilled. We approach these coming days with profound gratitude for the sacrifice and love given to us by Jesus. And we choose to be obedient ourselves, following you in the way that leads to the cross, so that on Easter morning, just seven days from now, we might experience the transformation and possibility of new life that you give to all people through your Son, Jesus Christ, and in whose name we pray and let all God's people say, Amen.